you have your Bible on you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 16. We're in verses 19 through 24. If you look at that verse, you'll notice 24 is the last verse in the entire book. We made it. We made it through 1 Corinthians. So before we get into the text, let's pray together. Father, we trust you and we trust your word. So we ask that as I speak, they are your words. It is your spirit's instruction, your spirit's encouragement, your spirit's guidance, your spirit's wisdom. And that this would be, by the power of your word, transformative in our lives. That as we think about all the things your word tells us to do and how to be and what to think, they can all be very confusing sometimes. And we land in this one central truth, that you love us. So help us to feel loved by you, to express that love for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finish 1 Corinthians today. Three and a half years uh, in the book, or in this letter, just over. Not really three and a half, almost three and a half. Uh, and I think, you know, you would agree, if you've been here that whole time, that's a lot to digest and it may be difficult to coalesce all these instructions and ideas and encouragements and corrections and commands into this manageable lifestyle. Paul's aware of this. And, I, and he, so he, what he does is he, he ends this book in a very tangible and helpful way that any Christian can take all that is said in this letter and use it effectively for the sake of God's kingdom. Meaning... At the end of this letter, after a long, long letter of lots of information that shows up in various forms, it's kind of a, a lot to take. If you sat down and read this from beginning to end, if you read 1 Corinthians from beginning to end, you'd be like, there's so much there, I don't even know what to do. It's too much, right? It's this idea that less is more, right? It's more effective because it's more tangible. Whereas when it's more, it's like there's too much, you gave me too much to do, now I don't know what to do. And so Paul just kind of summarizes it, just brings it, funnels it down to this one basic truth. He essentially summarizes the entire letter in these verses and the entire Christian life into one basic truth. Love. Which is the, pre which is the, the point, the premise of the entire letter and the point of the end of the letter, and the point of the Christian life. Verse 19, Paul writes, To the churches in, a the, I'm sorry, the churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I know you really want to hear about this holy kissing, that's supposed to be going on in the church. But first, let's understand the premise for the command to kiss each other before we start kissing each other, okay? All the churches in Asia, all the home churches, and Paul just basically says, all the brothers, everybody I know, sends their greetings to you. What Paul is really focusing in here is on the fellowship of believers, that's, that's the focus. Fellowship of believers that is expressed in unity. 
So the Corinthians were incredibly internalized. They, they were not concerned as much with serving the community and building an outward kingdom as much as they were concerned with building their own empire internally that they called the church. They're kind of self-focused. They're really selfish in a sense, and they really just wanted to kind of make a name for themselves and be kind of like bolstered up as this great church full of philosophers and great thinkers and they weren't really concerned with the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus, but they were genuinely Christians. They were not kingdom-minded. They were internally-minded, not kingdom-minded. We, we are a part of a larger body that includes other godly churches and other people who want to exalt Jesus' name and see him glorified in, among the nations. Okay, So it is imperative that we as a church sometimes take a step back from our narrowly internalized focus on grace church to take a step back and see God's kingdom. To see God's grand vision for his universal church that includes other great churches and other Christians who don't go to our church. We have to be kingdom minded. That is required if we're going to be a church that declares unity in Christ. We can't say, oh yeah, I, hope, I believe in unity and I'm united with my brothers and sisters who go to my church, but I don't like those churches. That's not unity because they're your brother and sister in Christ too. So we need to kind of step back from grace, church, see the kingdom, and that kingdom mentality will be enough energy, enough spiritual truth for us to motivate us to build God's kingdom locally in our church. So we've got to step back from that narrow, focused mindset to see God's bigger picture of what he's doing so that we can promote unity with other believers, whether they attend our church or another church. So unity that we show and the way we unite and fellowship with each other does two things. The first thing it does is it reveals the power of the gospel. So unity reveals the power of the gospel. The gospel's power is in the shed blood of Christ that covers your sins. But it's even more than that. His blood then, metaphorically speaking, becomes the blood that runs through your veins. Right? If you believe in Christ and I believe in Christ, we share the same blood. We're related. We are brothers and sisters of the same father and we're fellow heirs with our brother Jesus. We have been adopted into God's family, meaning we are more closely related with, you are more closely related to a brother or sister in Christ, a Christian who speaks a foreign language that you don't know in some faraway country. You're more closely related to that Christian than you are to your own biological brother who's not saved. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the blood of Christ, that the blood of Jesus is more effective for unity than our actual biological blood and DNA. That's how strong the bond in Christ is. So if I am more closely related to my brother in Christ who lives in, let's just say, China, never met him, we don't speak the same language, we don't know anything about each other, he's a brother in Christ, I have a tighter unification with that person than I do with someone that I know who's related to me by blood. And, and the meaning of that 
isn't just that. It isn't just that I, I, I can all of a sudden, like, communicate with that person. Like, the relationship isn't tangible, right? Like, I can't call him up and be like, hey, dude, I've never met. We're brothers in Christ. And, like, I don't know his phone number. You know what I mean? Like, on a tangible, practical, on-the-surface level, that doesn't really show up in a real practical way. And that's not the point. The point is, if my relationship with him is that tight, even though I don't know him, how much more strong and united should my fellowship be with the brothers and sisters of Christ that I do know? So, it's very important that we see the power of the gospel in unity. Now, the second thing that unity reveals is the nature of God. In Revelation 7, 9, John has a vision of worship in heaven. And he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is why we do missions. This is why evangelism exists. This is why missions exist. Because God's kingdom will have people from every language and every nation, every people's group that exists on earth will be represented in heaven. Meaning, when you go to heaven, most of the people there will be different than you. They'll be Black and white and yellow and red and whatever. Every color, every language, every kind of person will be represented in heaven. Heaven will be filled with a bunch of people who are different. But with all those differences, we will still be one in Christ. Perfectly united in Christ which we are supposed to be expressing today in this life. If that's a future reality promised to us through the gospel, then that's a reality that we need to express today in this life. So this unity does not mean that we become just like one another completely. Right? It, despite, our, despite our uniqueness from each other, there is still unity. But it doesn't mean we become just like each other just because we're united. Listen, Unity is not uniformity. Unity is fellowship despite differences. So unity celebrates our differences and still declares we're one. Uniformity says you can't be different than us. You have to be just like us. You can't be with us unless you're just like us. Oh, you're not white, you can't be with us. Oh, you're not black, you can't be with us. Oh, you're not, you don't speak this language, you can't be with us. Oh, you don't believe this doctrine, then you can't be with us. Oh, you're not like this or like that, then you can't be with us. That's uniformity. Unity in the gospel says we're all different, but in Christ we become one. That is the power of the gospel. And that reveals the nature of God because God himself is the best expression of fellowship despite distinctions between people. God is one. There's only one God. But God is three persons, right? <laughs> Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is distinct from each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and so on, right? So each has their own distinct role and personhood with their own distinct heart and mind and feelings. 
However, despite their unique distinctions, they are completely and perfectly 100% united in mind, heart, thoughts, ideas, purpose, will, power, and sovereignty. So though God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, he's so perfectly united that we only have one God. Our unity then is not just about our relationships with each other. It's more than it's bigger than that even. It is also about how our unity with each other reveals the united nature of God. Our unity not only benefits our own joy because with unity you will be happier. In good relationships, you feel better. Does it feel good when someone doesn't like you? Does it feel good when you don't like somebody? Let's be honest. When we don't like someone, you're just justifying why you don't like them. Maybe they said something you don't like. Maybe the thing they told you was true. You don't like that it's true. So you decide not to like that person. Does that make you feel good? No! You admit it. You don't like that. None of us like that. We don't like being at odds with people. We don't like when relationships are broken. Even if it's not a really tight relationship, we don't like that feeling. We'd rather have unity. We all agree. Most people are not confrontational and would prefer peace. And if you don't prefer peace and you prefer the chaos and the confrontation and the frustration and the problems and the relationships that are broken, if you prefer that, then you don't know peace and you might not know Jesus. So our expression of unity with each other not only brings us joy, but it also glorifies God as he is revealed in his personhood, in his three distinct persons in one. That part of his nature is revealed in our unity with each other. So the question then is, how do we express this unity? The answer is fellowship. Fellowship is the means by which we express the unity that we have in Christ. And one of the ways we express that united fellowship with each other is that we kiss each other. Okay? Verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So we're going to practice this. Everyone turn to your neighbor. I'm just kidding. So, so we're not going to kiss each other this morning. Uh, although you're probably sitting next to a family member. It might be appropriate. But, you know, let's just avoid it. Does Paul really... Expect us to kiss each other. Well, for the Corinthians, the answer is absolutely yes. For us, the answer is no, and I'll explain why. The kiss was a standard practice in the first century. It was a form of greeting that everyone practiced then. Okay? My, I grew up, my grandma, my mom's mom, 100% Italian. You do not get by that woman without getting kissed. And her daughters and sons, my mom and her sisters and bro brothers and sisters, Kissed everybody, too. They kissed each other. They kissed their parents. They kissed their kids. So I grew up being kissed by my mom constantly. All right? And I go to these family events, and everyone's just kiss, kiss, kiss. They're just, just kissing each other. I'm like, ah, you know, and you're just a little kid. And you got, you know, ants coming up and squeezing your cheeks and kissing your face. And as a kid, you don't like it. But we were Italian. It was an Italian family. Everyone just kissed each other constantly. So for me, it's not really a weird thing. I don't put that on you guys, obviously, so I don't go around trying to kiss you, okay? But I kiss my family like crazy, and I told my boys, I'm like, I don't care if you're a grown man, I will be kissing you for the rest of your life. Get used to it now, all right? So 
It's not a weird thing to greet someone with a kiss, right? We would all agree with that. But there's certain circumstances in which it's appropriate, in certain words, inappropriate. And so culturally speaking, we don't kiss each other, right? You don't greet each other at the door at church and kiss each other. Okay, but there's a, an author, his name is Mark Taylor, and this is what he says. This kiss was a gesture of respect and affection and served as an outward symbol of unity among believers. So we don't practice this because we don't live in that culture. Now, if we maybe, I don't know what it's actually like in Italy today, but imagine over in, you know, there's a lot of foreign countries where you see these people and they greet each other with a kiss and it's normal. I've seen it on TV at least. I don't know if it's true. It's TV. But still, I imagine there's plenty of places in this world where people greet each other with kisses and it's totally normal. And they'd read this and go, absolutely. We already do that. We kiss each other all the time. Met someone for the first time yesterday, kissed them right on the lips. Totally normal. There might be cultures where that exists. That's not America. It's just not America. You're probably going to go to jail if you do that to everybody. So we, so, so we have to take this and, and pull out of it the principle. The principle is what Mark Taylor just told us. It was a gesture of respect and affection and served as an outward symbol of unity among believers. That's the principle. So how do we express that today? We shake hands. We give each other appropriate hugs. Right? Those are ways in which we do this. So, so really, you could take this text, greet one another with a holy kiss. You could say, greet, greet one another with a holy handshake or, a, or with a holy hug or whatever you want to insert there. Some form of greeting that is essentially extending to somebody a gesture that says, I respect you, I have affection for you, and I'm with you in Christ. That's the point. He's not just saying, greet one another with a kiss, greet one another with a handshake, greet one another with a hug. But with a holy kiss, a holy handshake, and a holy hug. Now, it's kind of weird to call a handshake a holy handshake, right? What's a holy handshake? The point is that the handshake, the gesture, whatever it is, the hug, the kiss, the handshake, it doesn't matter what it is. The point is that it is a gesture that is intended to show somebody, I welcome you into fellowship with me. It is unity that drives that desire to see that person brought into a relationship with you. During our meet and greet time, we shake hands. We are essentially saying, I'm with you. I'm, we're united. We're together. We're here together. We're doing this together. I'm greeting you. I'm meeting you. I'm saying hi to you. We have a relationship. I want to develop fellowship with you. And the motivating factor there is unification, is unity in Christ. We are here for the same reason, to worship the same God. Because we're saved by the same Savior, by the same gospel, with the same sins, and we're going to the same heaven, we're going to do the same kind of worship, sing the same songs, listen to the same sermon, because we're united. But we're totally different people. That's glorious. That God could take such distinct differences and create such perfect unity. And when we extend the hand to people, we're welcoming them, welcoming them into our life and saying, I care about the gospel so much that I want to have a fellowship with you, a relationship with you, because unity in Christ means that much. So, introverts, this one's for you. Because you know that it's hard for you to step out of your comfort zone and interact with fellow believers. A lot of you, I've seen a lot of you who I know are introverts grow in this way. It's kind of nice with the, you know, the meet and greet during service. It's only like, what, two minutes long or so. So you can kind of run like, hi, 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 hi. You don't really have to like engage, right? 
But it's, it, you know, I, I think it's important for people who, maybe not necessarily introverts, but because extroverts can be shy too. And, and actually introverts can be outgoing ultimately. But for those of you who are shy, maybe a little reserved and don't like the idea of going out and creating new relationships, this is important that you interact with your fellow believers, not just for the sake of your own spiritual development or your own personal growth, but for the sake of the gospel and your expression of how powerful Christ is working in you to transform you from shy to bold in Christ for the sake of unity and fellowship with other believers. And it's as simple as a handshake of respect and love. Extroverts, this is for us too. Time to remove the focus from us, right? We love to meet people. We're like, oh, I love fellowship and unity. I'm shaking everybody's hands. Yeah, no, really? You know what you're doing? Because I, I know this because it's me. It's, hey, hey, look at me. Hey, hey, look at me, right? It's, it's time to turn the greeting and the fellowship and that time of extending a hand to people away from impressing people with our flamboyant personalities and instead make it about them and make it about elevating the gospel and the power of the gospel to unite each other regardless of who we are and what we're like. So this is very practical for I think everybody in the room. So fellowship, not only in our local church, but fellowship with all believers is an expression of our unity in Christ that is provided for us through the power of the gospel. But what motivates such unity and fellowship among believers? What is the driving force behind your desire to have unity and fellowship with other Christians? Because if you're sitting here and going, yeah, no, I get it. I'm supposed to like have relationships like, yeah, and fellowship with people, yeah. And, and okay, so it's because of unity, but like why? Like what, what, if I don't have that right now, what is it that I'm missing? And if I want that, but I'm not doing it, what is it that's going to drive me and motivate me to do it? Love. Love is the motivating factor. Love is what forces our unity. Love is what drives our hearts into other people's lives. Love is what makes us want to have relationships with other people. Love is what makes us see the power of fellowship and the power of unity. Love sees the power of the gospel because the power of the gospel is love. And so anyone who's saved by the gospel has experienced the most powerful love that's ever existed, which is God's love for you. And if you have that love and you've experienced that love because you know Christ and you love Jesus, then you also are motivated to engage that love that you have into others and to have fellowship and to be united with them despite the distinctions and differences that we have. Verses 21 through 24. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And the final word of 1 Corinthians. Amen. First, Paul offers a warning with a command. All right? The command is, let him be accursed. So, 
what he's saying, he's using an imperative mood to the, the word accursed uh, or be accursed is a verb that is an imperative mood, meaning this is a command, but he's not commanding the church to curse people. What he's really doing is showing the imperative nature of the warning. The warning is essentially, if you do not love Jesus, you are going to hell. And he calls it an imperative or turns it into a command to show the intense nature of the warning. Not that the church should condemn people to hell because we can't, right? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The point is that the warning is so intense that we have to pay attention to, if you don't love the Lord, you're going to die eternally. That's severe. That's really harsh. And the reason it sounds so harsh is because it is a harsh reality. 1 John 4, 8, if anyone, or sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Think of this warning as kind of a summation of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 which says that if you do anything at all, anything in your life, period, and that thing is done without love, it is literally pointless, worthless, and completely meaningless. So the warning means that we ought to love the Lord, which means we as believers, therefore, will love one another. This is, I'll get to loving one another in a second, but this is all over Scripture. Like, if you got your ESV app on your phone, just open it and type in um, love or type in uh, law and love or law of love. And there's text all over. You'll find a bunch of them that talk about fulfilling the law in love. Our love for God produces love for those whom he loves talked about this last week. If God loves you, you will, because he loves you, he will fill you with his love. That love will pour out of you and into those who he loves, others, his people, the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our motivation and desire to love God's people comes from God loving us, right? 1 John 4, 9, we love, why? Because he first loved us, meaning his love is the force behind our love. So God's love for us then becomes a means by which we love him and others. So as I said a few weeks ago, the best way to grow in your love for others is to love God more. To grow and develop your deeper affection and love for God. And then what Paul does is he actually shows them this love in this text three ways. Paul shows them love in three ways. Number one. He loves the gospel. Paul loves the gospel. Do you love the gospel? I mean, think about what it is. You're going to hell. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. Nobody gave up more in their life than Jesus. You can add up all the soldiers 
in all the history of the world who went to battle for their country and for their nation and for their kings and emperors and presidents and for the people in their land. And you can say, oh, and they gave up their family and they sacrificed their life. They gave it all. Not even close. You could take all those soldiers throughout the history of the world and add them up together and none of their sacrifices to combine will ever equal the sacrifice that Jesus made. He had only known perfection with the Father for eternity and he gave it up because he loves you and because it would bring him glory. That is the ultimate sacrifice. No one can give that up. He's the only one who had enough to give up. That's an incredible... How do you not love the gospel? Just because he loves you? Like, I love my kids, but I don't do stuff like that for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's... it's you, we just don't... Like, we see the love. We understand it. It makes sense in our minds. It's tangible. It's real. We're saved. We know what Christianity is like. We understand the Bible. We love Jesus. We love God. We love his people. We love his church. We love the kingdom. We're doing ministry. It all makes sense. It's all coming together. We're, we're doing this love thing. But if you really just close your eyes and just think for a moment, the, the, the audacity of Jesus to give it all up for you is unbelievable. How do you not love the gospel? Paul says, our Lord, come. He's expressing his excitement for the return of Jesus, which is the completion of the gospel. That's what Paul said. I love the gospel. I love the gospel because the gospel is going to come to an end when Jesus returns and brings us home and then fulfills his end time prophecies. And when that happens, oh, we'll see the gospel complete. We'll be glorified in Christ. We get new resurrection bodies. Everything's going to be fine and dandy, and I just can't wait. Jesus, come. It's because Paul Loves the gospel. Now the second thing, the second way that Paul shows them love is that he loves the church. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to tell someone that you love them. But it's another to call upon the unimaginable grace of God to cover that person. That is, that is not only love in words, but that is love in deed. To pray that God would bless them with his grace. None of you, I'm sorry, none of us deserve God's grace. Right. None of us deserve God's grace. Period. That's what makes it grace, right? We don't deserve God's love, but he's gracious and he gives it to us. That's an incredible reality. And when I look at people, especially people who I know, and the better you know someone, the more you see their flaws and their faults. You know, the more you get to know them, the more you see how amazing they are. Their qualities and their good things and the things you love about them, right? And you start to like them more and more, but also you start to learn the things that you don't like about them, right? The things that aren't their best qualities, right? So I could look at each person I know in this room like, well, you're like this and you're like that and, you know, really nitpick. And you could look at me like, well, you do this and you do that. And I go, well, you do this. And we could go back and forth at each other and we'd probably be, tr it'd probably be true and we'd be right. But the reality is grace says, but God looks at all of that and he knows even more and he knows even the worst about you and he still loves you and still gives you his grace. 
Who are we to judge people to the point of saying, I can't love you because you're not good enough? None of us are good enough. That's why I tell you, I want you to trust me as a pastor and as a shepherd. I, I try really hard to be trustworthy. I try really hard to be a good shepherd. But listen, I'm going to fail you. I am not perfect. Brian, as an elder, is not perfect. He's going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. All of us will fail each other somehow. And if I have to walk into this church every week and think, oh boy, I better not screw up or these people are going to hate me. If I, that's my mentality. First of all, it's legalism. Number, and the second reason is that that is not going to produce fruit. That's, just, that's like walking on eggshells around that person that just is always pointing out your wrongdoings, right? It's hard to live that way. You don't want to be around that pe those people. But if I can walk into this church every week and just think to myself, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I got a bunch of people who love me despite my imperfections. And they're going to accept me no matter what. Then that, that, that's an environment I love walking into. Because then I could just be me. I can make mistakes in front of you, discover where I'm wrong. You can lovingly tell me, hey, you should try this, and I can try to get better. That's an environment of growth and fruit. And we have to love each other, love the church, to do that. And the third thing that Paul shows is that he loves Jesus. He mentions Jesus' name four times in this text. People who don't love Jesus don't talk about Jesus. People who love Jesus talk about Jesus. Do you talk about Jesus? So I do this all the time. I noticed this not long ago. Uh, maybe about a year or so ago. When people are talking to me and they're telling me something and they say something that I already have recognized and realize, I love to jump in and be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I know what you're talking about. And this is what I say all the time. I was just telling my wife, Holly, about that yesterday. Like, I do that a lot. I'm constantly referring to my wife like, so I'll just go up to you and I'll be like, hey, so I was telling my wife this the other day, and I started to realize there's no reason in this conversation why I have to tell the person I'm talking to that I was just telling my wife what I'm just about to tell them. It's an irrelevant point of the conversation. I could just go up to that person and say, so, hey, I was thinking about this. But for some reason, my brain and my heart just keep talking about my wife because I love my wife. And I love to talk about my wife. And then she told me the same thing. I think I just shared this with you guys like a month ago or so, right? And, and she likes to talk about me. And she's like, oh, I was just talking about you. I talked about you to everyone. Like, I talk to everyone about you too. Like, we love each other. So we talk about each other. It's just, I don't think about it intentionally. I'm not walking around like, who? how can I tell people about my wife? Like, that's not how I think. It just comes out because I am always talking to my wife. So every thought that goes through my head, I'm just like, Holly, 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 Holly. And I'm telling her, I'm telling her, I'm telling her. And you see her, her eyes just glaze over. She checks out half the time. But you guys think these sermons are long. You should be in my house. <laughs> I tell her everything. Because I love her. And she's, the per she's my person. So I talk to her all the time. Do you talk to Jesus all the time? If you talk to Jesus all the time, you're always with Jesus and thinking about Jesus and talking to Jesus and talking about Jesus. It's good, his, his name's going to come out of your mouth. You're not going to be able to help it. People who love Jesus talk about Jesus. So those are the ways in which Paul shows us how he loves. Loves the gospel, the church, and Jesus. 
And the point is that Paul tells the Corinthians, tells them to love. He's telling us to love. And he's not only just saying that you should say you love, but that you should show your love. And that we show our love through unity and fellowship. So our unity with other believers is shown in our fellowship with them. And this is why it's vitally important that we obey something like Matthew 5, 23 through 24, which tells us that if you're about to go offer your worship corporately with God's people, he says, if you're going to come to the altar and offer your gift, that's, that's offering worship to God. But you have a problem with your brother in Christ. Don't even think about coming to bring your, your worship. First, go back and fix your conflict with your brother and then come back and worship. Why? Because how can you worship a perfectly united God with other believers as an expression of your unity with them and with Jesus while you are not united with your brother in whom you have a conflict? That doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive, it's inconsistent, it's illogical, it's unreasonable, and it's not good. You can't, we come together corporately to worship in unity. So if we've got issues with relationally, we have to fix those because we can't say, oh, unity, unity, unity in my worship and fellowship with the church while I hate somebody who's a believer. Because that's not unity. And that's why Jesus says, fix that conflict first, then come together. So... What is it? What is it that would cause a person to not resolve the conflict? A lack of love. Love is the driving force behind the desire to resolve conflict with the brother or sister in Christ because love seeks unity. And if you don't care to be united with each other, then you don't love them. And if you don't love them, 1 John 4, 8 says that you don't love the Lord. And then Paul's warning becomes very real. You might not be saved and or you're cursed to hell. Again, that harsh reality becomes very practical and kind of scary when you start thinking about, do I love people to the point where I'm willing to resolve conflict? Does love drive my desire for unity and fellowship so much so that I will be willing to face that hard conflict? Because if love is not driving the desire for that unity and fellowship so much so that I could overcome conflict, then the question is, do I love? And if the answer is no, then you don't know God. So even though we have this harsh warning at the end of this letter, which was needed for the hard-headed Corinthians, we also have this uplifting encouragement about the power of love, right? After a long letter filled with instructions and corrections and rebuke and warnings and encouragements and commands... The Corinthians probably walked away from reading this letter feeling a little bit, like, overwhelmed. Right? I mean, we've been in this book. We've been in 1 Corinthians for just over three years. Could you summarize each section of this book based on the last three and a half years of sermons? Probably not. 
I don't think I could even do it. People ask me sometimes, like, what did you preach on Sunday? And I was like, uh, I don't remember. Like, if I don't remember, they probably don't remember. <laughs> so the point is that sometimes we get a lot of information. Sometimes it's a lot, right? And this book is a lot. Three and Over three years is a lot. So with a heavy load of information... And a heavy load of instructions and a lot of commands and encouragements and ideas and concepts and doctrines and theology and truths and practices and all kinds of information and corrections and rebukes and changes to the structure of the church. All this stuff going on. It's a lot to take. And with all of that, we get this soft and easy landing at the end, which takes all that this letter contains and summarizes it into one simple reality. Love. I mean, look at Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, listen to this, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So listen to this. All the commands, this is what he says, Paul says in Romans 13, uh, verses that, 9. Any other command, any command you can think of, is summed up in this word, love. So at the end of this book, at the end of this chapter, all this information and instruction, everything that's going on, we get this gentle, soft, easy, tangible, practical, real, something I can put my hands on, Right? That, that, that no matter what, in case I, I forget, if I walk away from 1 Corinthians and I don't remember what certain topics are about or what the instructions were about, you know, if I'm in that gray area, if something's not explicitly clear in Scripture, what do I do? Oh, I don't remember what the answer is. Oh, how are we supposed to do the Lord's Supper? Oh, wait, how does church discipline work? Wait, what's worship look like? How do the spiritual gifts function? What does the spiritual gifts really mean? How do we do this or that? And, we think of all the instructions and warnings and all that stuff. If we walk away from it going, you know, I don't really know what to do in this particular situation. I don't remember what 1 Corinthians told me. We have this truth. Just love. Just love people. If there's anything you can take away from this, if there's anything you pull from this book, it is just love people. If you don't know what to do, resort to love. I was reading this article, it wasn't a Christian article, it was a psychology article on parenting. And it said, in any situation, they, they gave like a list of, if your kid's feeling, behaving this way, it's because they're feeling this, here's how you respond. And then it's just a list of different actions and feelings that kids can express, and how parents, the kind of uh, disposition a parent is supposed to bring to that situation. Whether it's like rebuke or correction or instruction or comfort, whatever. At the end of the, the explanation said, when in doubt, if you're not sure what to do, you will never, ever, ever, ever go wrong. If you comfort them. 
comforting your child in any circumstances is never going to be the wrong choice. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, why? Because nothing says I love you to a child than being comforted by the person they, they trust and love the most. Nothing says to me God loves me than when he sends people to comfort me. If you take anything away from this, if you're ever not sure what to do, you can always be sure of this. You'll never go wrong if you love. If you're like, I don't know what I should do next. You know what? I'm not sure if it's right or not, but all I know is whatever I'm going to do is going to be lovingly. I'm going to love these people. You'll never go wrong. So, it may seem just like a real simple truth, like a simple reality, but without God's love as our moving force, we are like a train moving full speed with no tracks ahead. We're headed for danger, destruction, and catastrophe. Because without love, there's no Christ. There's no relationship with God. So, to summarize this text, to summarize this entire letter, to summarize the entire Bible, to summarize your entire Christian life, and to summarize God's greatest and most important command, Paul says it best in chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much more about love that can be said. But if we could just take a step back and see how love from you gives us love for you and love for others, then we can ask you, Lord, help us show other people love by fellowshipping with them, by expressing the unity that you have with us because we want people to see your love and we want to be loved by you. We want to love others. We want others to love us. Help us to be a church that when in doubt, we always choose love. It's so simple. It maybe even feels so basic, Lord, but after a long book about a lot of doctrine and theology and hard truths, let us just fall back into your comforting arms of love. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys, I love you. Have a blessed week.